Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined with hosts Casey Wanowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's topic is one that we believe is extremely important to our society as a whole. Today, we'll be talking about how we can fight workplace bullying within the United States. Today, we are privileged to be joined by North America's foremost authority on workplace bullying. He is a social psychologist, a former professor of psychology and management, the winner of the National and Campus Teaching Award. Since 1997, he has been actively leading the fight against workplace abuse. He is the author of The Bully-Free Workplace and The Bully at Work. He's also the director of the campaign to enact anti-bullying legislation within the United States called the Healthy Workplace Bill. Dr. Naimi, Thank you so much for giving us the privilege to speak with you about this very important issue. Thank you, Mr. Nazar. Firstly, let me ask you, I think uh, you probably get this question a lot. So what drives your passion in ending workplace bullying and abuse? It came uninvited, undeserved, unwarranted, and certainly unwanted to us. I visited our family from a psychiatry clinic in a big HMO, healthcare organization, hit my wife, The assailant was named Sheila. To this day, I can't remember her last name. Probably good for legal reasons. Sheila pummeled my veteran clinical psychologist wife, who was more talented than she, and we thought it was harassment, and we were very upset because my wife's health had declined, and we hired an attorney who we later had to fire. I could have just actually Googled this thing, this phenomenon we came to learn to call workplace bullying, thanks to the Brits illegal in the U.S.? And the answer was no, but I had to pay an attorney to find that out. And she lost her career. She lost everything. She was untracked and injured. And we didn't know what thunderbolt had hit us. And in our discovery, we saw that the Scandinavians had coined the phrase mobbing, where there were multiple perpetrators actually abusing people at work. And we hadn't thought of it in the context of abuse. We had always been thinking of this as some form of harassment, albeit legal. And then the Brits called it workplace bullying. And we went online. It was very primitive in those days. This was uh, 1996. And by 1997, we said we had to do something about it. And we, looking backward foolishly, but at that time, very enthusiastically launched a toll-free hotline where, of course, you pay. And we asked if people had been bullied, and they came in droves. Oprah called. They came in bigger droves. The Washington Post covered us. They came by the hundreds. And we soon needed a bunch of volunteers to work in this fledgling organization. And it actually damaged my wife. It re-traumatized her. So we learned she had to step back. And I stepped up. And that's been the story since mid-1997. We basically were just two kids. Well, we weren't two kids. We were already in our 40s. Looking back, we wondered and wished somehow, not that we wished it upon us, but since it did find us, wish it had found us when we were in our 20s. 
But it came in our 40s, and we just said, we got to do something about this. It was like a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, we've got to launch a parade kind of thing. We could see nothing on the horizon that would be a stumbling block. We only wanted to help people that we called targets. Everyone in the world called them bully targets. And we listened and we listened and we listened. We stopped counting at 12,000 telephone calls and by then had some staff that we could hire to take the telephone calls. And they took another several thousand. But we knew we had to do more than that because of my management, professor background and teaching background and our years of consulting together. We knew the organizations could do something about it. So we had that piece. Ruth, with her clinical background, was the one who developed how to help targets the bullied individuals the most and coached me on stopping stupid things that I was doing on the phone. And it really became the melding of organizational psychology. I'm a social psychologist by training and the clinical aspect of how this creates such health harm. We launched it and we met all the, the folks internationally. We attended conferences and it's a very small group. It's kind of a clique. We're still very close with some of them. We did the research. We do these national studies. We just concluded our fifth national study. We raise money for it, but Zogby gives us a uh, Zogby Analytics, who's of Lebanese origin and I'm half Lebanese. And for some reason, they give us a great deal. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and we do those studies. We did a lot of online studies. We wrote some books. And of course, we had an extensive website I kept adding to until we'd get consultants that come along and say, people don't read. Well, I'll tell you who reads. Bully targets read. Because once they've latched on to the fact and come to recognize that what's happened to them is not them, but something externally caused, they dig deep. And they are real diggers. They read and read and read and read. We write for them. We've always provided tons and tons of free help for them. Now they have coaches that they can go to who've trained with us. But we're 24 years into it this June, and we're still at it. A lot of our friends have to take years away from it, a year off or not, the academics. It even bothers them. I've had my quadruple bypass from this. My wife has got her PTSD. It's quite, it's not the topic for those faint of heart. There's no doubt about it. But again, we didn't seek it, you know? It came to us, and we felt, who better than us? And it still drives us. You have had a guest on your show who attended our training called Workplace Bullying University. She came in as a social worker who cared so very, very much about it. And she went back to Canada and started the equivalent of the Workplace Bullying Institute. And she's a dear, dear friend to us today. See, she's got the clinical aspect. She's training clinicians because therapists don't know. Targets know the bullied individual. You want clinical help. Not every mental health person gets it. And you as an attorney know, above all, every bully target wants to sue their employer. They want to go after that bully. They want revenge. But as we can discuss later, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. We feel we know targets better than anybody in the world. We've done several studies with them. We've talked to thousands of them, and they keep coming to us. They're a great group of people, but they drive professionals crazy because they don't understand what a traumatized person is like. So how do you define bullying? I know that you said before some people call it harassment or mobbing. How do you, you know, where's the line between bullying and someone just being bad management? let's say. Mm -hmm. It's in the definition. Exactly. It's repeated health-harming mistreatment, abusive conduct that takes the form of intimidation, humiliation, or threats, threatening behavior, verbal abuse, 
or workplace sabotage, where they're meddling with your work to the extent that you can't get it done. It's the antithesis of productivity. So when you look at it's got to have harm. That's the whole point. Does the intent behind it matter? Intent, it it is deliberate. Okay. I'm so glad you said that. It is deliberate, but it need not be in the definition any more than in intentional infliction of emotional distress. If the behaviors occurred, it is assumed that it was intended. Can it be accidental? Yeah, it can be accidental. In these later years, the more recent years, I've been called in by universities that have these high-profile academics that bring in millions and millions of dollars in grants, or these scientists, or these high performers in a corporate setting. And they're a-holes, and they find us, these employers, very good employers, who say, we're finally fed up with Bob. My bully's always Bob. And they want to deal with Bob. And so we have a program to deal with bullies. It's a good alternative to anger management. I mean, it's just BS if you think that you're going to get, and a fool's errand, if you think you're going to get personality change. These people won't change. But you can constrain their behavior. But the point is, is it deliberate? Yes. All the science says yes. However, when I'm working with them, they're very convincing in trying to gaslight me to tell me that their misconduct is basically the way we define American way of management. And you know what? They're telling the truth because they're saying they are doing what they think is expected of them. And it's always some version of an old-fashioned command and control method, top-down, authoritarian, yada, yada. Now, are they aware that that's wrong? And that's where the trick where I work with them to bring them around to their understanding. No, they're not aware. They don't have insight. It's deliberate, but they don't have insight into why they do what they do. So when I force them to articulate it, almost always it's, well, isn't that management? I'm just doing what's expected of me. Sometimes they're doing what is commanded from above them. Somebody in the executive team is telling them, and then they're the ones caught in the middle. In a way, in a way, I'm not saying caught. I don't want to write off what they do. I don't want to forgive what they do. They need to be held accountable. But I will tell you, they don't have the skills to translate that command into any humane form of managing a human being. It's like a straight pass-through of authoritarian hostility right through their soul because they're just a conduit, and they deliver to those below them psychological terror. The very founder, Heinz Lehmann, a German working in Sweden, there's a story behind that, but his names for it were mobbing psychological terror, and social misery. And I love the social misery. When we were trying, Ruth and I said, well, let's have a parade. Let's form a group. Let's do something. What do we call it? Mobbing sounded paranoid because it's many against one. It is very truthful. It is always many against one. But I wanted psychological terror. Now, look at the calendar. This is 1997. This is pre-9-11. Ruth, the profound thinker between the two of us, and the one who names everything, said, I don't think we should go with terror. (laughs) And she was so right. But truth is, to the individual, it is a lived experience of terror. So I've got to hear these really high-profile people. I can turn them into tears, though, because what you have to do is cause them to reflect like they never did. And you go back, and I don't know why, everyone wants their father to be proud of them. And you can use that as leverage. Does your, what your mother knew if she were alive today, what you have been accused of doing to so many people? Well, I didn't mean to. I said, I don't care if you meant to or not. You have this brain that you get credit for. 
That's another good point, Jeff. How do we excuse this in American business? We say he's brilliant, but brilliant, but, and the but is always some sort of rationalization for inhumane conduct. And it's like, don't we have bright people who are brilliant and kind, brilliant and humane, but the organizations are petrified they will not be able to find them. So what they do, this is the nonsense. This is the nonsense. And you, as plaintiff's attorneys, know this so well. You will see an organization have extreme disproportionate turnover. They'll throw away 30 people to keep Bob. At what point do the cost balance? We take companies who do call us in to show them the costs of this. I mean, the fiscal, financial costs of the bullying. And you lay it right in front of them and they say, yes, but that's my Bob. He's positioned himself as a kiss-up, or academics call them ingratiators. But the point is, we all know these brown-nosing, kissing, kiss-up types. Bullies are managing upward. It's impression management to present, to basically create a sense of indispensability. You can't do without me. I'm your Bob. But they don't know every Tom, Dick, Harry, Susie, and Sally who are beneath them, who have been driven out, not because of any weakness. And I want you guys to know this. This targethood is not based on weakness. It's based on a strength. These are the go-to experts who lived comfortable work lives until these jerks came into their lives. And suddenly, because of the pressure they put on them, the abuse they endured so that they became much like battered spouses, because this phenomenon is akin most to domestic violence, that when that pressure is put on them and you have the onset of stress-related diseases, their performance falls apart. They do not suddenly not be able to perform. There's an underlying biological thing going on, and the bully has caused that, and the organizations just turn away and say, well, so if 25, 30 people leave, the bully can say, you know, it's really hard. In fact, I've got a new one of these bully cases just this week started, point, he has told the rest of the company to justify his disproportionate turnover that like no one else has because he's a holy terror. The point is, he says, you just can't find good people these days. And companies buy it. We got to get companies to under... There are many audiences for workplace bullying. The bullied individuals, yes, but frightened employers who are petrified because they don't know what in the hell to do about it who are then comforted by their feckless HR departments who say, well, there's no law compelling a policy, so I guess we don't need to do it, coupled with their internal or their external legal counsel who say, you know, if you create a policy, you're really going to increase your liability. Maybe you shouldn't increase your exposure. You should do something about Bob, but do it on the side, do it on the sly. But no need to create a policy because, oh my gosh, then people could hold you to it. And that's the mess we're in. That's the mess we're in. And this is, I argue, it's preventable. That's why it's so important that we get the legislation passed. Because unless companies know that they're going to have legal exposure, know that they're going to be legally liable for Bob's behavior, they have no motivation to change it, like you said, because they just don't pay attention to the the revolving door of employees that are leaving. They don't have to. Right. They don't have to. It's a real shame. And when you're looking at it from the top, you only hear Bob's version of the story. Mm -hmm. And what you have, I've changed over the years from saying, I used to say there are whistleblowers and there are targets of bullying. Actually, everybody who's a target of bullying does 
Two things. They finally recognize it and start to externalize the blame and seek ways to get healthy. That's where we kind of come in. And two, they muster the courage to let the organization know. Because you know from we now, thank God Me Too has broken loose. I tell you, even though it's only about sexual harassment, almost everything about Me Too is paralleled in the bully world. It's just a little worse because we don't have the legal standard. We don't have the compulsion for HR to launch an investigation and worry about reckless indifference and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's why they can blow off bullying. Do you say that because of the power dynamic in terms of the correlation? For, for me too and workplace bullying, like being a bullying target and those that are victims of the of the Me Too movement, those that have experienced sexual harassment, do you see that oh, the yes. correlation in terms of the power dynamic? Six, yes, that the assailant, the abuser, mm-hmm. has the backing of the organization. Now, in our newest stats, we've got 65% of the perpetrators are bullies. That's always been 65-70%. And 20-some percent are co-workers. Mm-hmm. And then there's that brave group who bullies up the ladder, right? And that's now up to 14%. It's never been so great. Wow. But here's my point that's stunning. Who are the targets? Don't go along with the myth that it's all non-supervisory workers. In this brand newest set of data we got from the national study, and it's nationally representative, it's not the kind of study we can run. So this I'm able to extrapolate to all adult Americans. So this national survey of these people say that this is actually kind of very different for me because we have always argued, I've never asked the role very much of the target. Only 52% of them are not in management. 40% are managers. Mm. I've got three levels of managers in there. So it's mainly, I know it's the middle manager. So let's say it's that middle manager bully. He is getting help from top and bottom. Okay, not, I just want you to know that. Then Zogby did a remarkable thing. It's kind of a double survey, survey within a survey. They also gave me a subset of only employed workers. Guess what? Instead of looking out from the national view, outsiders mm-hmm. looking in, when you look from the employed view, 46% of the people bullied are managers and 45% not managed. That never happened before. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. So basically, it is still, yes, Mahir, power differential, mm-hmm. but it not always, not always. The power is not titular power, not title mm-hmm. power, but power in the narcissist's head. Every perpetrator, every bully is sufficiently narcissistic so as to believe they're superior to all others. So that's why they can cut. They may be an admin assistant. They may be the front office receptionist. And this happens actually a lot in medical offices where the <laughs> and they bully the heck out of the physicians, their bosses. So to them, it's not so much their role. It's their mm-hmm. superiority. Wow. Yeah. Makes sense. Relevant to the pandemic nowadays, have you seen that there is more workplace bullying within the office versus at home? Have you noticed that there is a decrease when it's working from home or is it pretty much nope. equivalent? Nope. It's increased. I asked that. Ah. I couldn't not take advantage of that. I asked about remote work. Okay. And Okay. So the national average of those who claim they're bullied is 30%. That includes those being bullied right today and those who have a history with being bullied directly. So those directly bullied 30%. But when it's remote work, it jumps to 43, 43%. Now, wait. Wow. It's worse if you count only the employed workers. This is the funny subset sample that Zogby gave me. I've never had before. It's a gift. 
39% is our rate of bullying. Back in 2017, our prior one, it was 19%. Look at how it's jumped in four years. What happened in those four years? Anything? Oh, I don't know. We basically had all hell break loose in terms of societal norms with respect to bullying and disrespect and anything goes, and furthermore, breaking the rules. So I asked about that. I asked, has the last four years, the political and the public disrespect shown affected the workplace? And 53% said, yes, it has, and it has done so by enabling, encouraging the violence, the interpersonal violence, because workplace bullying is a sublethal, non-physical form of workplace violence. They have done it by also modeling rule-breaking. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we got all, oh. we, we're trending in the wrong direction. And it's always been bad. But I've always been asked in the past, reporters, well, has it gotten worse? And I wasn't able to say so. And now we actually have a good metric to say so. So what I'm understanding is if someone's a bully in the workplace, they're most likely also going to be a bully in other facets of their life, right? Or do you find that people are bullies at work? And then Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic question. I'm just curious. The answer is, of course, there's a continuum of bullies in terms of their ferocity, their intensity, and does it cross other domains in their life? Like, are they living hell for the wait person in the restaurant? Are they the road rager? Are they the right. domestic batterer at home and all that? The psychopathic-like ones are. They cross every domain. They're hostile. But here's, and I don't have the numbers on this. This is creepy. I wish I could. That's another survey, another X number of thousands of dollars. But I am curious, as you are, how many people are church deacons, in other words, somehow principled, whether it's by organized religion or what, they're principled, moral, good people. They're parents of the month. They're great parents. They volunteer at their school. They pick up litter, whatever. They give it to the food bank. They're wonderful people. But at work, they're demons. I would suggest the majority are in that category. They are good people, but they're coming to work where they're in. Imagine them coming to a play, and they're just not given a written script. So what they do is they read the cues. What does it take to survive here? Not only survive here, thrive here. What's going to get me ahead? What's going to put me on top? Well, you're going to have to be cutthroat. You're going to have to play the zero-sum game of wiping out and obliterating other people's hopes and dreams to advance your career. They will do that. Could they compartmentalize so well they could do that only at work and be great people elsewhere? I contend yes. I contend that because... One, I'm a social psychologist, and I taught university 21 years, and I spent a good number of those years teaching about role-governed behavior. People can, and and if you compartmentalize, you have different roles, so you have different scripts. So you can be a decent human being and be a viper and a maniac at work, and these are the ones who talk to me saying, that's what I'm expected to do. That's what my job is. But wait a minute, you lead prayer over here in the weekend. Well, that's my job there, too. And they don't see... (laughs) So those people seem like they can be taught very easily. Yes. Because if they're not... They would be teachable. Right. Yes. Okay. They need to be taught, just as a target needs to be taught, to recognize the externality of their situation. You didn't invite it. You didn't cause it. 
You're not alone. And hey, it's the work environment. It's not you. The bully's part of the work environment. You were put in harm's way. You did not create it for yourself. Same thing for these managers. I'm thinking now of this cadre of middle-level managers who think they got to be bullies, but they are also being bullied from the top. Say, now, how does that feel? How does it feel as a recipient of this? Well, it doesn't feel good. Well, then, for gosh sakes, you've got to understand. So, yes, they are. And this is what I've learned. They're teachable, but some are just recalcitrant, locked in personalities. They're of a certain age. They're unchangeable. And for them, we force the organization to constrain them and threaten punishment and loss of their job. But the good number are teachable because they are totally unaware that they're in a sick, twisted play, a drama written by others. You know what's crazy about this? You guys got me thinking now. And it reminds me of the fact that corporations are human-created entities. They're artificial. They can be... You can redraw the lines, you can recreate, you can reinvent. In my training piece in the university program, Workplace Bullying University, I feature the work of Robert Sapolsky, the stress guy, the stress guru, really, for America at Stanford. And he has this wonderful tale where he's working with his troop of baboons, and the whole culture changes when all the alpha males get killed off because they ate poison food. Voila! you got a group now that's twice as many females as males, and the only males that survived were the ones who had previously lost to, and beaten up and chewed up by the big guys, the alpha males. We'll call them bullies. And for two generations of that troop, they have lived without bullies. They totally changed their culture, and when new adolescent baboons come in, as they do from other troops, Instead of them reverting back to alpha male saying, letting this jerk, they pound that potential alpha male down saying, you know what? You're in Troop B here, whatever the name is. Kikarok, I think he called him, but Troop B. And at Troop B, we're basically, he uses the term socially affiliative. And to us common folk, that means they're bug pickers. What animals do, who are dependent animals do to comfort one another is groom one another. So they're picking the bugs off, and <laughs> it's one of the most altruistic kind things you could do to another animal is groom them. And they got me in such trouble at some conference once when I called the union president a bug picker, and I meant it as a, I meant it as a compliment. <laughs> I meant he was one of the good guys, and it didn't go over. But if the my point is, if the animal kingdom can change, what are we saying about our workplace? What are we holding on? Where's the rigidity? Give me the excuse. That when you have demonstrated harm in your books with extraordinary turnover and loss of talent, because that's the point. Who gets targeted? Here's the trait list. Targets are independent, which people don't think of as first. In other words, they're kind of uppity. I just did a CLE workshop with my buddy David Yamada, who wrote the Healthy Workplace Bill for attorneys. And my part was to say, how can you deal with, communicate with this hypersensitive client? So they are uppity, they're principled, and that can drive people crazy, and it certainly threatens a bully. They're technically more skilled than the bully, which really embarrasses the bully. I go back to the way we create management to explain that. Why do we think we should make managers, put managers as, oh, who's the guru of management that's dead now? Help me. Where he basically was a helicopter model. You can drop any manager 
into any industry anywhere because managing people is a set of skills independent of the job. But the trouble is you don't have the loyalty to people if they know you don't know what you're doing. Now, either you sit there when you come in new and say, I don't know anything about what you guys do. Please teach me so I can get the resources you need and I need to know what you're doing. But instead, it's, I don't know what they're doing and she's the go-to expert. I'm going to bring her down because she threatens me because that's what drives it. Third trait is they're well-liked. So, a.k.a. emotional intelligence. They have empathy. They're well-liked by everyone. Fourth is they are not political players. They are team players. They are apolitical. They turn their back on what's called political intelligence in an organization. They like people, and they love their jobs. Now, that's the whole thing. They love their jobs. Their faces are focused on the work for which they're getting paid and which they've taken pride for multiple years while their backs are naked and available to be stabbed because they've turned their back on politics. They discount politics, and I think that's noble. That shouldn't be the driving force in a workplace. But for the bully, the whole orientation is about politics. So the bullies are threatened by this strong, revered person. So you'll find that most targets are the people who have been the go-to experts for a long time. They've enjoyed status. We know a lot about them. For a full third of them, is the first time they've ever been subjected to abuse. 20%, 19% of them were bullied in school. But that's only one in five. But I will tell you, there is also the 49%, 48% who have prior life abuse experience. In childhood, exposed to family violence or abuse themselves, or domestic violence as adults, or, God forbid, a certain percentage of them rape or sexual assault. So they bring that to the workplace. It doesn't mean you have a target on your back, but it does mean once you are targeted, you go to an emotional place that a person like me who stupidly grew up with two loving parents and never had abuse, I take so long to recognize it. I was being bullied by the schmuck at an in-house job that I had. I like outhouse better, but I did do some in-house corporate stuff for a couple times in healthcare. And my wife said, gee, this is before she was bullied, but the wise one said, he's really mistreating you. And I said, nah, he's not mistreating me. I said, he's just stupid. He's just stupid. He's just stupid. I would never recognize it because I had never seen it before. That takes people forever to recognize, and the longer they take to recognize, dear target, you're getting sicker and sicker without your awareness. The cardiovascular system is already kicked into high gear in response to the distress, but high blood pressure doesn't carry with its symptoms, so you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And all the while, the bully's digging their claws in. Now, what does it take to make it stop? Please don't ask targets to get their own abuse to stop. That's the same as telling a battered spouse, well, just tell him to stop beating you. He's a reasonable guy. He's one of my best friends. He's always been kind and gentle. Yeah, to you, you schmuck. You have never been under his thumb. I'm telling you, if people know the dynamics, interpersonal dynamics and group dynamics of domestic violence, they'll know bullying. It's better than the workplace harassment. So do there have to be specific targets or what about a situation where someone is just threatened by 10 of their coworkers and they make active efforts to sabotage all of their coworkers' work as a way to, you know, self-preservation, make themselves look better? Would that be considered? Then they're basically targeting the whole group. So it doesn't matter that 
there always has to be a target okay. of abuse. Okay. The misery will fall on someone. The targets are, by definition, the people the misery falls disproportionately on, while the other people are spared. In this brand newest, newest case I've got, it's a great illustration of how they rotate their targets. After they've driven a couple of the others out, some of the people who supported this person during a prior investigation are now being turned on. <laughs> it's almost, yeah, yeah. So they're not loyal. To, they want loyalty, the bullies, but they don't give loyalty. You also describe a very paranoid person by the whole set of 10, and they'll make everyone miserable. But there will still be a select few who will be in their inner circle who will be immune temporarily. And they'll enjoy the benefits of friendship. And that's the problem. They've co-opted the co-workers to pull them away. Co-workers are a terrible resource for targets to expect help from. Is there any particular industry or profession where you've seen in your experience that workplace bullying is the most prevalent? Yes, healthcare and education. In education, split it up. You got the K through 12 teachers, elementary and middle school. You got high school being pummeled by superintendents, but you've got middle school and lower grades pummeled by their principals within their building. And then you got the university professors, older faculty, Tenured to the non-tenured, younger, somewhat, or older researcher to younger researcher. Then in healthcare, nurses almost consider it, and I think this is twisted, Casey, an occupational hazard. I think there's, it's almost an unwitting acceptance when they use the phrase, I think you've heard it before, nurses eat their young. What they're talking about is this internecine nurse on nurse within the group murder of one another, senior nurse to newbie nurse. They call them newbies. And we've had several cases. I've had several cases legal. And our very first consulting gigs were in hospitals where we saw it. And I've worked a great deal. with So many nurses have come to university training. And the point is, it's driving nurses out of the business. They don't need that crap. Now, on top of all the COVID and the rest, I would be fascinated as an observer of nurse bullying to know if that has been shoved aside because out of necessity mm. of the mess they're in, just the constant demands, these 12, 14-hour shifts, maybe is, I don't know if it's worsened. I think when people get more tired and depleted of all their resources and their ability to emotionally cope, my experience tells me they're going to be more bullying. But I can't imagine there being much more for nurses. But again, I have right now seven doctors that I'm an expert witness for. So, yeah, docs get bullied. Woo. That's that whole, like, fraternity mentality, right? Like, when they were in medical school, they got bullied, and now they're going to do the same thing to the, the new doctors that they're supervising. Yes, the ritualistic torment of the residency, the medical residency, the no sleep residency. We've got this sick, twisted notion that you're a lower life as you're coming up the journeyman levels of mastery in these disciplines. And it's a hierarchy. You're right. It's a fraternity. And you need to just buckle under and accept that you are nothing. That's really crazy because those nothings have already finished medical school and are probably, right. in fact, all of mine have been residents or fully board certified docs. They paid their dues. Cut the crap. But it's someone older than them or higher ranking than them who believes they have to be belittled. 
And once again, because they're threatening. Almost every one of my physician cases, I got the brightest doc, I got the smartest person, I got the most patient safety oriented person, and those are the ones that are getting in trouble. And the teachers, they're the most beloved by the kids, the parents, and they have the best methodology, so they got to be driven out by a rigid authoritarian, well, what can I tell you? Authoritarianism, first basically described back in the 1950s by Adorno, the psychologist, it has never, ever gone away. We revere authoritarians way too much in our organizations. Let me ask you, Dr. Naimi, in terms of what you had mentioned before about redrawing the lines, that we can change the systems in terms of ways that corporations conduct their business and how they manage essentially people and labor. In terms of legislation, you've been at the forefront of bringing about this legislation that is meant to address this and to hopefully put some teeth into the process of helping those that are being targeted to have certain legal claims so we can move towards a different society as a whole. How do you think we can actually get this passed into legislation? Well, let me credit first David Yamada, Suffolk University law professor in Boston, as the author of Healthy Workplace Bill. He came to us in 98. He had been made professor. I think he's the first Asian-American full professor of law in the U.S. And he said, I'm following this bullying work. Have you thought of getting a law passed? And I said, I don't know nothing about birth and a bill, but set out to learn what that would involve. And he wrote the legislation, the draft bill for us, and we learned to citizen lobby. I mean, I took my wife with a California woman who was pretty much more injured short of death than anybody we have come to know in the whole movement over the years, and me. And we went and we learned to lobby. My job was to go grab the Kleenex box in the office and let them tell their tear-inducing stories, gut-wrenching stories to convince them. And this was prior, this is 2003 that we got at first introduced in California. We really thought we were on our way. And then we have since learned the ugliness of sausage making of laws. Mm. And we have done this. Let me tell you what the Healthy Workplace Bill attempts to do. It, it attempts to plug a gap, actually a huge gap, in employment law, as you know. The public thinks that everyone is entitled to a workplace free of all hostility. What they don't understand are the, the few precious words, are you a member of a protected status group? And then when the white guys are told that and they learn, well, you know, there's not a lot we can do for you. And then when you hear it's woman on woman, 61%. We see a lot of woman on woman. 61% is same gender. When it's same gender, yes, technically you could call it sexual harassment. You're the legal legals. You know sexual coercion is illegal. But boy, is it hard to make a case when it is same gender and it's nothing but cruelty. It's meanness. And it's so hard to prove that the source of the animus, the hatred, is actually your gender. No, I hate you as a person. And then here's the defense that's maddening, right, when you use the civil rights laws, the non-discrimination laws, and the policies that they uh, engender, is when they're an equal opportunity abuser, that's their defense. Well, that guy not only torments women, but he torments men. Oh, so it's not driven. by. So the worse they are, the more defendable they are. I can't believe it. So people don't know, the public doesn't know that 
The best fit for workplace bullying in current law is this tort, intentional infliction of emotional distress. But it's got that provision that requires that the conduct be outrageous. And if you lived in Canada and you filed under emotional distress or nervous shock, you could, like Linda, would live up there. She could claim that the conduct was outrageous as viewed by a reasonable person. But in America, it's all over the map. And it's some version of conduct ain't outrageous at work unless it's beyond the bounds of civilized society. Oh, cut the crap. So that law, that was Yamada's treatise in Georgetown Law Journal saying, we need another law. We need a standalone law to deal with, quote, status-blind harassment, a.k.a. workplace bullying, a.k.a. psychological violence, a.k.a. whatever, and a variety of names and titles, workplace abuse. So actually, he wrote into the law, not the phrase workplace bullying, but he uses abusive behavior, abusive conduct considering abusive conduct one level higher and worse, more extreme than hostile. So here's the point. He writes into the law a very employer-friendly provision. If an employer, a good employer, has nothing to be afraid of if they had taken reasonable steps to prevent and correct. That's his code for create a policy and faithfully enforce it. And the employee doesn't use the policy, then the employer can't be held accountable. See, you're off the hook. So we're incentivizing. But every other employer can be held, as you say, vicariously liable, and they can be sued. So for the first time, Americans, regardless of their status, they don't have to be in a protected group. They can be male, female, transgender. They can be binary, whatever, non-binary. The whole point being everyone would be eligible to say, I've been subjected to abusive conduct. Now, this sounds good because think historically. We have said no to child abuse. We have said no to domestic violence, although have any of those stopped? No. But at least there is a legal route to relief. It's wrong. We society, we said it's wrong. Workplace abuse is the only abuse in America that's not yet taboo. Not only is it not taboo, we're having these discussions of its acceptability, its desirability by employers, and everything else. So we have a mountain of things to overturn. So in we go with our little package of this bill in stories and statistics, but no money. So people say, you've had this bill introduced in 30 states. In the last session, Massachusetts had 109 co-sponsors. New York had 86 co-sponsors. More co-sponsors than votes needed to pass it in the law. Why doesn't it get through? Well, let me tell you the story of Mitch McConnell. You understand how single individuals held up, well, every state house has a Mitch McConnell. It's either the Speaker or the Assembly in Massachusetts, or it's a chairperson, get this, in New York, of their labor committee. We went through so, we've had so many bills introduced since 2003 in New York. They've termed out the Assembly chair, then they've thrown two speakers into jail, for crying out loud. And we still can't get the bill through a committee because if the chair doesn't want to schedule a hearing. People don't understand that individuals can tie up very popular legislation. And our legislation, when we, and I've testified in several states at these committee hearings, and I invariably follow the Chamber of Commerce, the State Chamber of Commerce, or whatever the business lobby's main name is in that particular state. They get up, I don't know whether these people went to college, 
they don't even act like they read the bill. They stand up and say, current non-discrimination laws and harassment, anti-harassment laws are adequate. Well, that's a lie. I'm not going to call them a liar. I'm just going to say this plugs a gap, a hole. This addresses all the other types of cases. In our 2007 national study, we got a four to one ratio of bullying cases to discrimination cases, showing that the big pie is cruelty and bullying. One fifth of that whole pie, one slice is EEOC type complaints and lawsuits. And it's a very, very narrow protection. But I preach to you guys. You are the experts in that. But again, the public doesn't know. Targets don't know. That's why they want to file lawsuits. So we have done everything we can as a ragtag citizen group across the country. I have coordinators in states. It's been introduced in 30 states and in several states multiple times. Here's where we are right now. It passed into law full form in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Well, I was behind the other one, too, but it passed, and then the male governor vetoed it. But it passed in 2020, and furthermore, they've already promulgated the implementation rules. They're going to compel employers, all employers, to create a policy and to faithfully investigate. Wow. That's fantastic. Utah, they've created a training mandate for state agencies. California originally mandated that all firms over 50 would couple with their sexual harassment training for supervisors only a paragraph or two about abusive conduct, which is thoroughly confusing. On one hand, you've got something that is illegal and actionable, and then you've got bullying, which is not actionable, very confusing to people, no mandate, anything. They've expanded the requirement and spelled out abusive conduct. They use our definition of abusive conduct, which is what I gave you, Jeff, as the definition of bullying. And now it is every firm larger than five must train both supervisors and staff on this. But I've learned what they're doing. It's all online. They give it like 30 seconds, short shrift. It's just minimalist. So we're in Tennessee. Oh, God. We've got a law passed. A firefighter, a volunteer firefighter, was the great champion of the bill. He was a wonderful guy, and we were working with him. He got it signed into law that there was the state had to do policies. The very opening day session of the next legislative calendar, they killed the bill. And then in 2019, they rewrote the bill and reversed it as an employer protection. No employer in Tennessee shall be accused of abusive conduct. They took our bill to protect workers and made it an employer protection bill. So it is just bizarre. Our newest bill is Georgia, Bill 391, and it is to mandate policy writing. Now, this is in the same house that has just done all the voter suppression stuff. So where will it go? Why can't we get people say something's wrong with the bill? There's not a thing wrong with the bill. It threatens employers, and we're not the people invited in because we bring money. We bring ideas, people, stories, anecdotes, and stats, and a meritorious argument, to tell you the truth, and a change to American employment law that, what, 50 years? What do you think? I mean, holy crap, it's been so long. Yeah. But this is America, and it's really, really tough to get the momentum. But we're starting again. It's the beginning of new legislative seasons. We have three states, Little West Virginia, Joe Manchin State's back on the books. I've lobbied there and testified there that it will go nowhere. Yeah, that's going to be difficult. 
And it's uniquely American, right? Because yes. Because a lot of other Western democracies have these anti-bullying All right? of them. All of them. Yeah. Except us. Canada started in 2004 with an employment statute. And British Columbia in 2014 passed something that was workers' comp-based. But all the other provinces, their tack is to go and put bullying. For them, it's grounds-based discrimination. We call it status-based. They call it grounds-based. But sort of the EEO type plus bullying into their occupational safety and health code. Actually, health and safety. The whole world is health and safety. We're safety and health. And they put it in so you can pursue your bullying claim as basically a violation of your health, a compromise to your health, workplace health, which is very smart. David Yamana says that our OSHA is too toothless to add to that. The EOC has shown some awareness of bullying, but they are understaffed, undermanned, under everything, underfunded. So there's no government. We don't want a government agency to have taken on because the other thing that is our opponent in every state where the bill gets introduced are the state agencies who say they attach what are called fiscal notes. In other words, this will be too expensive for the state. Why? Because we will be sued. Wait, why? Are you saying you won't create a policy for your agency? Well, we're obviously an employer and we're obviously going to get sued. And we're saying, wait a minute, that connotes that <laughs> you're going to go automatically from zero to bullying. Why would you? Right. But then the lawmakers can say, oh, this will be too expensive. So that's the story of, the, of legislation, where we stand. When I first got it introduced way back, myself with my wife and my friend, Carrie Clark, I said, I don't think it's going to get done in my lifetime. And I was only in my 40s. <laughs> it's not going to get done in my lifetime, I don't think. I don't know. Wow. It is crazy because we're America. Well, Dr. Namey, this has been such an informative discussion. We've learned so much in this hour of discussing this very important issue. We certainly are in many ways advocates for those within the workplace. And ultimately, we're catering in many ways to a better society where there's kindness and equality and opportunity. And so people shouldn't be subjected to these abusive type of behaviors, certainly no one deserves it and no one should ever condone it or allow it to occur in our society. So I really want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for all that you're doing to spread awareness on this very important issue. And I'm really hopeful that we can hopefully try to help you out in trying to get this legislation passed throughout the country so that way people can be taken care of more than having to take care for the companies that ultimately just make money off of them. So I want to thank you, Dr. Namey. I appreciate your time. and Very informative. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for helping. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.